You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this special episode, we are grateful to be joined by Dr. Yuri Sark, advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defence, for a conversation on Russia's war on Ukraine. Aspie's Beck Shrimpton speaks to Yuri about transparency and Russian propaganda, Moscow's decision to place nuclear weapons in Belarus, and the path ahead for Ukraine. Yuri shares his thoughts on China's proposed peace plan, the importance of allies and partners, and an important lesson from history, that pacifying the aggressor only leads to more aggression. We're coming up to 400 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. The Ukrainian military continues to fight and to receive great international acclaim. China and Russia have, somewhat incredulously, in the midst of this conflict, doubled down on cooperation, and Moscow is now placing tactical nuclear weapons on the territory of its ally, Belarus. To discuss all of these topics today, we are really pleased to be joined by Dr Yuri Sak, advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defence. Yuri, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Beck, for inviting me. So I think it's probably good to to start on an update on the current situation in Ukraine. Where do you see the momentum now and where do you think the best opportunities lie for Ukraine to push towards resolution in its favour? Right now, we're in in a place in this war where we're determined to liberate our lands. We have been able to push the enemy out of certain territories that have been temporarily occupied. We, we were able to stabilize the front line. We were able to degrade the army of the enemy to such an extent that they are unable to gain control of even small cities, such as Bakhmut, such as Avdivka, which are at the moment the scenes of the most fierce fighting. It is literally hellish. We get reports from the Ukrainian defenders every day, from these two cities in particular, and uh, it's World War I trench warfare. It's street-to-street battles. It's thousands of artillery shells. It's destruction of these cities, pretty much raising them to the ground, pulverizing. Like Just so that you understand, for example, the city of Avdivka in Donetsk, Oblast, before the beginning of the large-scale invasion, it was a city that was home to about 25,000 people. Right now, there are still 2,000 left who just refuse to evacuate for whatever reason. And, uh, of course, it's causing concern to us because we would like them to get out from the harm's way, but it's not really even possible at times now to evacuate people from those cities. But then again, taking a step back, the Russian army, the army that was touted to be the second strongest in the world, the army that was claiming that it can capture the whole of Ukraine in three days, maximum seven, the army which, when they were approaching Kyiv in February, April last year, in the tanks and armored vehicles, those that have actually survived Ukrainian fire and they were then captured by our army, we found parade uniforms inside those tanks. Now that means 
that they were not coming to Ukraine to fight. They were hoping that they would just roll in, they will be met with people with their open arms. And this is how it all began, from a huge, huge miscalculation. And this is exactly how it continues right now. Because we are under impression, under a very strong impression, that the leaders of Russia have no idea what actually happens on the battlefield, have no understanding of the realities on the front lines. And this is why they continue to use their soldiers as cannon fodder. You know, we are killing Russian soldiers by the thousands on average for the last two months, between 900 and 1,000 Russian soldiers are killed a day. Now, that's a lot of dead people. That's a lot of dead, newly mobilized Russians who could have lived their life, you know, doing whatever they were doing uh, in peace. Instead, they were sent to die to this slaughterhouse, ill-prepared, ill-trained. Of course, they are also followed by a more professional troops like Wagner Group, for example, the international terrorist group Wagner. But overall, the situation is difficult right now, but it's stable. And while we continue to protect our front lines, we are also continuing to prepare our counteroffensive because we have said it so many times that this is not the war that we can allow ourselves to become a frozen conflict, a frozen war. Look, Ukrainian people were just as shocked as I think everybody around the world when on February 24th, we saw Iskander missiles in my native capital city. Now, I cannot begin to describe to you what goes on in your mind when, you know, yesterday you were planning your life in a country which is rich in talent, startup industry, high-tech, very creative, full of ideas, westward-looking, and now we have to seek shelter in basements. I had to grab my own two children and run on the night of February 24th in the basement of my house because I had no idea if one of those missiles will land in my house. And, you know, I was one of the lucky ones. But, you know, day after day, months after months, this begins to take toll on you. And, you know, so look, we are determined to stop this from becoming a protracted war. We have proven to the world that we are very capable of beating Russians on the battlefield. We have proven to the world that we are super fast when it comes to mastering new Western standard weapon systems, whether they are main battle tanks, challengers, Abrams, Leopards, whether they are air defense systems such as Patriots. We learn fast because for us it's about our survival. It's not about some geopolitical grabs, land grabs or dominance. We don't need any of that. We just want to be left alone and live in peace and develop and take our kids to school every day and not be worried that while they're at school, halfway through the first lesson, the air raid siren rings out and they have to run for shelter. That's not normal. We're going to end it. We need to end it. You need to end it. The world needs to, to, to help you end it. Thank you for so clearly sort of giving those those pictures of of what life is like and and how ukraine went from this you know this country that was just so so full of promise and and heading in in all of the right directions and achieving incredible things i mean you've also sketched out the 
the incredible things you've achieved in having to face down the Russian military, but you should never have been in a position where you had to do that. And I think sometimes that's easy for people to forget as we talk about war and we talk about conflict. It sounds like a, you know, a two-sided thing. This is not a this is not a war that Ukraine chose. This is not a war that Ukraine asked for. This is a, a war that Ukraine is having to fight because it's been invaded. So you if know, you will allow me, there's just one little uh, thing I would like to add. Like when you say that this is not a war, like two armies, and uh, indeed we have become one big army. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I don't. We haven't been able to kind of calculate the percentage of. Uh, those Ukrainian defenders who had nothing to do with military, have no military background, because on February 23rd, our army was about 200,000 people. And on February 28th, it was 700,000 people. Because when Ukrainians realized what kind of threat we were facing, I mean, literally in central Kiev, we would have trucks that would deliver machine guns and people would take up arms to protect their homes. So the kind of people who are now fighting for our freedom, who are fighting for not just Ukraine's freedom, but for the world order and for the global freedom, they're just ordinary people, good ordinary people. We have, uh, just to give you an example, uh, a tragic example. So a company with whom I'm affiliated in peacetime before the war, it's a genetics startup. Yeah, right. Was founded by guys who are really brilliant minds, you know, they some 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 of their peers said that there will be one day when these guys will get a Nobel Peace Prize for some inventions of like cures for the whole of humanity, and they were actually these two guys. One of them, uh, one the name of one of them is Bijan Sharipov, and uh, he was actually looking in his research into like uh, DNA sequence DNA sequencings uh, and modeling, and. Ten months later, his body was identified by DNA tests because this bright mind, the guy who would bring glory to Ukraine and useful things to humanity, he took up arms instead of his scientific tools and he went to defend his country and he's dead now. Yeah. So for us, it's, it's, it's more than just a war. For us, it's a moment of truth. And, you know, by now we realize that when I say that for us, it's a moment of truth, by now I mean for all of us here in Australia, in the United States, in the UK, anywhere in the free world. I really appreciate you you adding that. Um, you know, the personal stories are, are things that make it very real for people. I, I know a family in, in Donetsk and, and they were actually looking to to move and, and bring some business to Australia, very high-tech company again, extreme talent. It was something that we were really looking forward to. And, of course, the, the war broke out and, and, no, they would not leave. And, you know, while he was, a, a you know, a scientist and a, and a technologist and, and doing brilliant things, um, he turned his his hand to, to fighting, to creating Molotov cocktails, his wife who was a doctor to tending to the wounded and they've never left. Um, they're still there as far as, as far as I know. And you're right, these are just ordinary people who have become soldiers. And I would put to you perhaps that, you know, even within Ukraine, 200 may have gone to 700,000 or a million or more, but globally, I think you, Ukraine successfully mobilised 
an enormous number of supporters and 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 some have physically gone to Ukraine of course some have chosen other ways to to advocate or fight with the with the pen or with words or any means that they can but you know your 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 army is is indeed much much bigger than than the 200,000 it perhaps was on the 23rd of February um we might go to um Geopolitics now, though, if we may. Uh, last week, Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida visited Ukraine, and that included a visit, of course, to Bucha, which is just one site, but a very well-known one of Russian atrocities last year. PM Kishida's visit was notably the first time that a Japanese leader visited a country in conflict since the Second World War. What was the significance of this visit for Ukraine? It was very significant because Japan is the third largest economy in the world. Japan is a key player in Indo-Pacific region. Japan is a country which for Ukraine is regarded as you know an important partner when it comes to economy, when it comes to even assistance now during the visit. The Prime Minister Kishida announced a new package of military assistance, which is very uh, well received uh, by us, of course. And particular importance of that visit was because it took place on the same day when the leader of China visited Moscow. Look, for us, since the very beginning of this large-scale invasion, Ukraine was visited by the leaders of all countries of free world, including Australia, Prime Minister Albanese, uh, Boris Johnson would walk uh, under the air raid sirens with uh, President Zelensky. Uh, Most recently, the surprise visit of Joseph Biden, uh, Olaf Scholz, Emmanuel Macron. uh, You know, every time they come to Kyiv, every time they come to other Ukrainian cities, it gives us reassurance that we are not alone in this fight for our global freedom. It gives us very clear understanding that we have to we, that we have this responsibility to stand firm on the eastern flank of NATO, the eastern flank of Europe. And for Japan as the leader of free world in that part of the world, as a democracy, you know, with all their rich traditions and a very powerful economy, of course, for Ukraine, it's very important to build relationships, not just with our immediate neighbors in Europe, but of course, in other parts of uh, the world as well, because, you know, we are building a coalition of free nations. And when this is all over, uh, we will carry on, you know, to discovering new great things for the benefit of humankind. Yeah, yep, absolutely. You you made the uh, the point yourself just then at the same time, of course, that we had Japan's Prime Minister in Ukraine. We had the Chinese leader Xi Jinping visit President Putin and that in itself is, is a fascinating parallel. Um, the, the optics of it are interesting to say the least. But... Um, Look, despite the International Criminal Court issuing an arrest warrant for Putin literally days before that visit, it went ahead. Vladimir Putin welcomed China's so-called peace plan. Of course, no great surprise because it, of course, sees a, a resolution in, uh, in, in Putin's favour. What um, what's Ukraine's view on China's 
peace proposal, if I may ask? That's a very good question. Now, we have our own peace formula that by now a long time ago has been announced by President Zelensky and it has been actually approved by the majority of our partners in the West and not just in the West. It's been approved by the UN. So we have a very good understanding of what peace means to us. Now, of course, we understand that uh, China, by virtue of their place in the international scheme of things, China is one of the major players in the international arena. And it would be odd if China would stand aside and not undertake any actions aimed towards a war which is now at the epicenter of the future setup of the world order. So our approach to China is we hope that China will continue to stay pragmatic when it comes to their assessment of the Russian aggression against Ukraine. We surely hope that China will not provide Russia with any military assistance. And we hope that China will not be offering Russia any loopholes that can be exploited by Russia to avoid the sanctions regime. So this is our pragmatic evaluation of the situation. At the same time, of course, when we saw the president of China in Moscow, it did send some sentiments of concern within our community, within Ukrainian establishment, because we understand that Putin is cornered. We understand that Kremlin is desperate to convince at least their own internal audiences that, look, hey, this is not the end of the uh, road for us. We are not isolated. Look, we have the uh, partner from China come and visit us. You know, And in fact, if you look at how Russian propaganda is using these kind of visits, right, this is exactly what they need them for. You know, They need to kind of show that, hey, we're not alone. Yes, there is the part of the world that issues arrest warrants against our president, but then there is other part of the world that thinks that we are, you know, not war criminals, that this is a conflict that probably has to end in peace on some mutually acceptable terms. For us, the peace can be achieved, and, and there are, like, very simple things which we have voiced so many times. Russian troops have to completely withdraw from our territory. And that's the one key point that was missing from the Chinese peace plan. And this alone means that, you know, we have to really carefully look at that peace plan. And if need be, our president has said that he's prepared to talk to President Xi and discuss and explain perhaps, you know, clarify why there are certain non-negotiable parts of our peace plan which we cannot compromise on, okay? Territorial concessions are not something we can compromise on. Uh, Russian presence on our territories by virtue of illegal annexations of our territories is not something that we can concede or uh, close our eyes to. So it is good that major powers like China are paying attention to this aggressive war of Russia. It is good that they are trying to play a role in 
negotiating or brokering some form of finding a solution to this war. But of course, we will continue to stand firm when it comes to the formula of this peace solution. And by now we understand that to achieve peace, we need and we will have to defeat Russia on the battlefield because everything Russia does on a daily basis proves that they're not interested in peace, they're not interested in stability, they're just interested in destroying our country, our national identity, our culture, our people. Uh, so this is why peace can come only after we win the war. Thank you for, for that. Um, it's, a, it's a very mature and pragmatic uh, approach to what I, I can only imagine must at times be incredibly frustrating is having other major powers attempt to sort of tell you what peace ought to look like for, for you, for your country and your people. And like you said, you know, you've articulated your own peace plan. Um, and I would, I'd like to think that's probably the, the right starting point for, for any conversation on a, on a peace plan that will actually end this war, like you said. Uh, I also think it's really important to acknowledge that, um, you know, this conflict has really served to highlight how very interconnected our world is and that things that happen in Europe and ideas around territorial integrity and sovereignty, you know, these these are values and these are ideas that are central to the existence of liberal, democratic and free nations, as you've said. And they are the same whether they are in, in Europe or in the Indo-Pacific. I think it was really notable that you had PM Kishida say that what is happening in Europe now could happen in East Asia tomorrow. That is a very you know, real, realist, realistic view of what we're seeing. But yet we do have a Chinese president that in some way is proposing that Ukraine cede territory to end a war. In your view, this is not an outcome, surely, that is consistent with international law, let alone your peace plan. There will be no ceding of territory in any peace plan that Ukraine agrees to. Is that right? You see, there's, um, we've just uh, mentioned even in our conversation that at the moment there is an arrest warrant against the leader of Russia. Now, how are we supposed to cede territory to a war criminal? I mean, that's just um, you know, a misnomer. It doesn't even sound right when you say it out loud. Like, you cannot sit down with with a war criminal and negotiate a peace deal uh, because the only thing you can talk about with a war criminal is the length of the sentence. You know, will it be one life sentence or two life sentences uh, for the crimes committed? So uh, this is so obvious. And look, we understand, we understand that there are some segments of populations uh, in Europe and around the world who worried about the future and they think that, look, Sooner or later, I mean, this war cannot go forever. So probably we need to start talking to Ukraine and try to convince them that, look, the reality is different. You know, maybe, yes, we understand how difficult it is for you to accept the fact that some of your territories have been now annexed. And we, yes, we, we are with you that this is against international law, but don't we all want peace? No. Uh, this is not how it works. Uh, and the reason why it doesn't work like that is because pacifying the aggressor results in more aggression. I mean, this is a simple truth that we should have known from, from our history, our common history, okay? So the other day I was speaking to a colleague of mine from Poland and, you know, I was just, Poland has been great when it comes to supporting Ukraine, you know, they've in all different aspects. 
And when I said to him that, listen, why do you think that Poland is so supportive of Ukraine? Without blinking an eye, he said, we are not naive. We are not naive. We know what's coming next. And, you know, when we speak to our partners, when we ask for more weapons, which we need to stop the war and win the war and bring peace back to Europe and the world, we always say that Putin's plans do not stop in Ukraine. Like, in his vision, in this madman, mad war criminal's vision, he wants to redraft the world order. He He's not happy with the world order as it is now. And he was very explicit and unambiguous when in December 2021, he said in an ultimatum that NATO should roll back to the level of 1997. That means countries like the Baltic states, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, all of these countries have to come back to Russia's fold or at least their sphere of influence. And then it will be a guarantee of some stability. So, you know, when you consider these ultimatums, it is obvious that there is no peace possibility without defeating, demilitarizing Russia and making sure that it doesn't present a threat to neither Ukraine nor our uh, neighbors. Yeah, you make you make an interesting point there about um, how history looks at moments like this, and 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 if we if we were to to stop and look back and and think about what we've what we've seen over the past couple of hundred years when we've seen a crisis like this, I don't think there is a good historical example that says peace at any cost is the way to go. In fact, often that has led to even greater, larger, more substantial wars. So I, th- I think you're making a really... And there's really another myth, point. actually, and I've seen uh, scientific, academic research proving this. So there's a myth which is used by Russian propaganda and spread as a narrative, a myth according to which all wars sooner or later end in peace talks. That's not true. I mean, there have been so many wars. I mean, the vast majority of wars end in one party losing to the other party. And there's a capula- and the uh, treaty that kind of resolves the out- or cements the outcome of the war is not a peace treaty, right? It's, it's a treaty in which one side says we are guilty, we'll pay reparations, we'll bear the responsibility for all the atrocities. So this is the kind of peace treaty that we have in mind when we talk about the future ending of this war. You know, and it's good that now in Europe, for example, there's a very, very active movement towards setting up a special war crimes tribunal that will deal with the atrocities that have been committed by Russia, Russian troops and Russian leadership in Ukraine. We are very meticulously collecting all the evidences. And, you know, thanks to the modern technology, mm-hmm. uh, the the evidence is ample. We've been able, for example, very soon there will be a Bucha summit in Ukraine because we will be commemorating one year since uh, the tragedy of Bucha became known worldwide. And, you know, most of the of those uh, Russian soldiers who were in Bucha have now been identified because of all the CCTV cameras, you know, the mobile phone footages and everything. So responsibility it, in this day and age, it is not possible to avoid responsibility. And there is now international will to make sure that this time we get things right. This time we do not let war crimes go unpunished because we don't want to set a bad precedent for the future. Going back to your original, uh, previous question, without naming names, but of course there are many countries around the world in different parts of the world who are now very closely looking at what is happening in Ukraine and how it will end. 
and they will make their next moves accordingly. And this is something that everybody has to understand, that if we don't contain this virus of international instability in Ukraine, it will spread. And instead of having to deal with one war, tragic as it is, we as an international community might end up having many scenarios like that on our plate. And what are we going to do then? Right now, Ukraine is asking for 300 tanks and assembling an international tank coalition. How many tank coalitions might we need then? Do we have enough F-16s to cover the whole planet? Or maybe we can give some to Ukraine now and stop this ever from happening, or at least for 50 years we will have peace of mind. It's, it's so obvious, you know, sometimes it's so clear and simple to understand that the delay, like last night our president in his nightly video address said that, look, guys, we have to not pretend as if this war has become normal, both in Ukraine and internationally. The worst thing that can happen is if we start treating this war as normal. So this war is going on somewhere in the east of Ukraine. We get news from Bakhmut and from Avdiivka, from Marinka, every th every three days, you know, and uh, it continues. This is a virus of chaos that we must contain in Ukraine. We can do it. We just need the weapons. Yeah, it's beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you for that. And it's, it, it is very interesting how adaptable societies are and how um, you know, levels of tolerance to absolutely atrocious things happening sort of sneak into the narrative and somehow into an argument, as you've said, you know, for, for, for peace when in fact, you know, this is, it is to me as well crystal clear that, you know, you need to stop the contagion as quickly and as definitively as you possibly can. Um, I think we've, we, we have, I think we've learned that time and time again, but still, um, you know, it's a world that's not ready right to face that that reality yet even though and as it's being forced to so this will be uh, this will be interesting to see where we go and another point really that stands in 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 the way of of of, of a clear conversation around the end of a war and or a peace negotiation is the fact that the kremlin has announced it would position tactical nuclear weapons in belarus um, the West, I think, has has kind of responded to this rhetoric and said it's you know this is dangerous talk and we really shouldn't be uh, welcoming this move and and this is very dangerous. But they've downplayed to an extent the immediate risks of this. What is what is your level of concern with this announcement by the by the Kremlin? What does it tell you about Putin's intent? On the one hand, we are not surprised, and this is not something that came out of the blue. I mean, we understand that Russia has been humiliated by Ukrainian army on the battlefield. Russia has lost the cloud of a superpower because of the losses on the front lines. Russia has not had any military success in a very long time. And we understand that to make up for all of these humiliations, they, they are desperately looking for some moves that will allow them in their mind to kind of still reinstate themselves on the international arena as a superpower. That's on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, so while we are used to their nuclear blackmail, we are used to the fact that, you know, we are dealing with an enemy which has a finger on a nuclear warheads. At the same time, you know, we are not complacent. And this is why our 
Ministry of Foreign Affairs has already filed an application to the UN calling for an urgent uh, Security Council meeting, which will have to consider this uh, deployment uh, or hypothetical possible deployment of tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. So by now, Russia understands very well that the tactics of fear that they've been utilizing will not work against Ukraine. So months of the missile terror has not worked. Uh, the destruction has not worked. Ukrainians, if you look at the results of polls, if you just ask ordinary Ukrainians, even in those parts of Ukraine that have been worst affected by the war, you know, everybody is determined to beat Russia. So we are not worried. Of course, we're worried because we're human. You know, it's uh, you have to be crazy not to be worried yeah. or not to be afraid of a nuclear strike. Yeah. But at the same time, this will not stop us. Yeah. Now, the Kremlin understands that this is how it is, that tactics of fear will not work and will not have any impact on us, on Ukrainians. So they hope that these tactics can work westwards and they can scare the Western communities into inaction. This is why they are rattling their nuclear saber in hope that, you know, the Western societies will freak out and will start writing letters to their MP saying, stop supporting Ukraine, we are on the verge of a nuclear war. Now, one thing I want to stress is this. In the last 13 months by now, we have crossed the so-called red line so many times and nothing happened. You know, every time the Western allies pledge new type of weapons to us, Russia is threatening a nuclear strike or at least their nuclear rhetoric is going a couple of levels up. So let's hope that this is all just desperate moves of a terrorist state with an impotent conventional army and this will not result in anything bad. Uh, but at the same time, of course, the international community, you know, you said that it's been downplayed, but at the same time, Russia has received so far very, very clear signals from the US, from the UK, even from countries like China, from India, that, you know, the use of nuclear weapons will have catastrophic consequences for Russia. So we hope that they are, you know, they are war criminals and, and, and all, but at the same time, self-preservation instincts must be there in some to some degree. So we hope that they will heed that advice. And hopefully that, you know, going back to the China's president's visit to Moscow, I mean, it is our understanding that this was one of the topics that was discussed during that meeting as well. And we hope that China has again reiterated to the Kremlin that, look, this is a no-go, right? So don't even think about it. So international community has to continue to send that signal to Russia and send that signal to Russia and send weapons to Ukraine. That's how it's going to work. Yeah, yeah, understand. You're, you yourself have a background in strategic communications and a lot of your government has been incredibly effective from your president on down at utilising, you know, highly uh, skilled strategic communications to to not only talk to the Ukrainian people, you know these nightly addresses, but to keep the world informed, uh, it's been it's been quite an extraordinary lesson I think for anyone watching Ukraine about the importance of keeping those communications going and and talking and assuring and explaining, and it is something that I think you've all done brilliantly well. Can you talk about how your background? comes into use for you in your current role. Can you personalize that for us a little? Just a few moments ago, I said that then 
when the war began, we all became one big army. So there are a lot of things that perhaps from the outside, it seems like these were things that we had to learn or have like specific background for. Uh, in reality, you know, of course, my personal background in strategic communications and crisis management kind of enabled me to probably do certain things faster than ordinary people would be able to do them. But communications, you know, when you are in the middle of a fire and you need to attract attention, you just keep communicating, keep <laughs> shouting for help. And this is yeah. what the Ukrainian nation is doing. You know, all of us on social media, on every possible messenger and social network, you know, we just keep telling the truth and we keep engaging the international community and, and, and explaining why it is not a Ukrainian territorial dispute with Russia. It is not even a Russian war against Ukraine. It's a freedom war for us. It's a war for like all of our shared values. And this is why it's important for us to be, uh, you know, our soldiers learn very fast to use weaponry. Our people learn very fast how to conduct information campaigns on social media. You know, social media is a powerful tool when it comes to collecting, for example, during the first stages of the war, when I told you that the, the size of the army increased exponentially overnight. And of course, it was difficult for the Ministry of Defense to uh, provide all the necessary kit and equipment because it took some time to put in place all the logistics and make sure that all the, you know, weapons manufacturers are contacted and, you know, the Ramstein format, which is a gathering of the ministers of defense of over 50 countries, that appeared only a couple of months after the beginning of the invasion. So during the first period of the war, it was all kind of makeshift in a way, right? So information campaigns as well. So some people would like use uh, social media to gather donations to buy bulletproof vests, night vision goggles. So, you know, we, from young to old, we all became experts in communications because we're crying for help. We, we're crying for survival. Yeah, so, but of course, my personal background allows me to work uh, longer hours <laughs> than ordinary, uh, yeah. My mind just went somewhere really interesting there as, as you were talking about strategic communications, which, of course, is very context-dependent, and you said a key word there, which was truth. Talk to me about the difference between strategic communications as they've been used in and by Ukraine and propaganda as it's been used in and by Russia. They're two very different concepts, right? Well, of course, propaganda in, in, in the kind of, in the most brutal form is lies, right? Lies which we see when the representative of the Russian Federation speaks at the UN General Assembly. Lies when the Minister of Foreign Affairs speaks at the summit in India and everybody in the hall bursts out laughing because, you know, when, when the Minister of Affairs of the terrorist state says that this was a war that was started by Ukraine, I mean, this is not even propaganda. This is not even lies. This is, you know, some medical condition. You, you cannot, like, describe it in any other way. But I had once a very interesting conversation with, with a journalist from the Financial Times, and, and we got talking about this difference between, you know, so, and I've asked him, what makes propaganda for you? So when you see our communication, when you see what Ukrainian Ministry of Defense is communicating, and when you compare it with like what Russians are doing, how do you, how, do you have a criteria that allows you to set aside? So this is propaganda and this is information. Uh, and the answer was very interesting because he said, you know, 
if in what I read everything is good and rosy, now that is propaganda. <laughs> so when we communicate, yeah. we try to be honest without compromising the national security and without compromising the military confidential information. And we understand how interesting it would be for people to know about the Kharkiv counteroffensive before it happened. But if the information was out there, it would not have happened. Yeah. And this was the most magnificent military operation in the history, military history of the last century. So it's it's a very tricky balance where you you have to withhold some portion of the truth in order to ensure that you achieve success on the battlefield. It's it's a very tricky balance when you have to continue to motivate your own people and your army without actually, you know, going down the slippery slope of like lying and in kind of embellishing things and so that they become untrue. Yeah. So truth is still the cornerstone of everything that we do, but sometimes we approach it in a way which allows us to be successful not just on the information front, but on the military front as well. Yeah, and that's and that's entirely sensible and necessary, of course, uh, um, in war. But um, you know, I think I think you really you made a really interesting and important point there about you know authenticity, um, and and truth can be backed up by by evidence. Um, yeah. So you know those those moments where you know it's incredibly sad that people laughed at Lavrov at the dialogue, but um. You know, that's when things get that absurd and that's so far removed from the truth that yeah. uh, you do get into that sort of territory. Look, I think we're going to have time for, for one last question. So I think uh, I'm going to go to to my final one here. You know, clearly President Zelensky has impressed upon the world the fact that support for Ukraine is support for global order. There's no doubt that much of the world has gone in behind that message and has absolutely uh, thrown its support behind Ukraine. Are you confident that this support is is being maintained, can be maintained, and particularly perhaps by the US? And what's your, your assessment of, of the risk of international fatigue setting in? And what are you what are you doing to prevent that? We understand that by now there is a very good understanding within our international allies that this is a war that needs to end as soon as possible. We understand that without ending this war, we hope in 2023, the world will continue to live with the threats of global food crisis, with the threats of nuclear blackmail, whether it'll be the stationing of uh, tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus or the Russian aggression in the Ukrainian Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. We understand that our allies see what is happening on the ground and everybody we speak to, you know, there are certain internal political issues in every country, and it's understandable. But at the same time, this war has been such a uniting factor that even in countries where ordinarily you would see, you know, divisions, uh, when it comes to these, to the issue of the supporting of Ukraine, after the discussions are over, we still get different even from different sides of political spectrum, parties in different countries unite and act as one voice. So we 
we hear these reassurances of continuing an unwavering commitment every day by the leaders of these countries. Yeah. And on our hand, we will continue to demonstrate that we are a reliable partner and we will continue to prove that by ending this war through the support of Ukraine, everybody gains and everybody is a winner. Now, I would like to use this opportunity as well to you know, thank the Australian people, the Australian government for standing with Ukraine, for uh, the military support that we have received. The Bushmasters that Australia has sent to Ukraine, they have been really, really efficient and instrumental, for example, during the Kharkiv counteroffensive, which we have already mentioned. And we know that there are more Bushmasters in Australia, which perhaps the Australian government can consider supplying to Ukraine. We know that there are uh, really great armored 4 by 4 vehicles called Hawkeyes, which are cutting-edge technology. And, you know, by Ukraine receiving modern weaponry, it sends a very clear signal to Russia that the coalition of free nations will provide to Ukraine the best that we have just to achieve peace by victory and reinstate stability in the world. So Hawkeyes are another thing which we kind of look forward to. Hopefully it is possible. And of course, uh, we would welcome if Australia considered joining the International Tank Coalition. You know, tanks for freedom. We know that Australia has Abrams tanks and why not? Um, it would be a great leadership move, you know, when, for example, when the United Kingdom was the first to announce that they will uh, provide to Ukraine the challenging tanks, that was very well received across the globe, you know, they, so we invite Australia to join the tank coalition and uh, together we will achieve victory and um, have a great beach party in Crimea when, when it comes. <laughs> oh, we do look forward to that moment, having a, a good beach party in, in Crimea. Uh, look, in the meantime, I think the, the level of support that Crane enjoys from the Australian population, from the government, from the opposition, from, from almost every quarter of this enormous country, despite it being so incredibly far away, is precisely because we see our own values and ideas at risk and we feel it is very important to, to support um, a fellow democracy to defend itself. You know, again, it's not a fight that Ukraine picked. Uh, it's a fight that came to Ukraine and it's one that, um, again, I think a lot of a lot of Australians agree, you, you know, you need to win. Um, you need to win for yourselves and you need to win for, for, the, for the world. Thank you for your honesty and your, your frankness and your authenticity today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Dr. Yuri Sak, thank you for being with us on the SP podcast. Thank you very much, Becky, for inviting me and stand with Ukraine. And like I said, the invitation to the Crimean Beach Party stands. Thank you. I'll be there. All right. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.